Hi, this is John. And today on Theocast, we are looking at the phrase, depart from me, I never knew you. Many of you have struggled with this and asked us, what does this mean? Why did Jesus say this? Justin and I are going to look at Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and then specifically looking at verses 21 and following to help you understand what did Jesus really mean when he said, depart from me, I never knew you. Stay tuned. A simple and easy way for you to help support Theocast each month is by shopping at Amazon through the Amazon Smile program. When you make a purchase through Amazon Smile, a portion of the proceeds will be donated to our ministry. To learn how to sign up, just go to theocast.org give. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging worry pilgrims to rest in Christ. Conversations about the Christian life from a Reformed perspective. Your hosts today are Justin Perdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm John Moffat, pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. Justin, it is good to be with you, my friend. We've This will be our second podcast today. We've got to spend some time with some of our friends over on Assurance of Pardon. Enjoyed that conversation. But uh, what people really want to know, JP, what are you giving away today? Got to give the people what they want. Amen. We are giving away this week because we like to be generous here at Theocast and also because we like to get good resources into the hands of our members and people that follow us on social media. We are giving away a copy of our primer on assurance that mm-hmm. is entitled Safe in Christ. And we use an application or some kind of software called the Wheel of Names. It's pretty <laughs> exciting. I don't even know. It's, yeah. Drums up all kinds of images in my mind. As a result of the wheel of names and, of course, the sovereignty and providence of our good and faithful God. That's right. The winner this week in terms of uh, the member, the Theocast member who will get this free resource is Leo Hamlin. So, Leo Hamlin, you have won a copy of Safe in Christ, a primer on assurance. Just send us an email, and we will happily get that resource to you, and we hope that's an encouragement to you. And if you already have a copy for some reason, then give this one away to somebody who would profit from it. We will give away a second resource, well, another copy of the same resource, to be more precise, via social media. So this podcast is releasing on a Wednesday morning, and if you go to our social media handles today, that would be Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. If you go over there, you will find instructions for the other giveaway, and you can enter yourself into that. And perhaps you will also receive a copy of our Primer on Assurance. And the winner of the social media giveaway will be announced tomorrow. That is Thursday. So we leave that to you. And yeah, we hope that these resources are of some encouragement to you. And yeah. There you go. There it is. If you would like for us to give something away, that would encourage or benefit someone else, you know, like a car, a house, whatever. Sure. Just let us know. Sure. I mean, people have needs, man. That's right. Yeah. Book, a beer mug, who knows? Who knows? Absolutely. Well, Justin, today is one of these podcasts that I think for years and years and years we have been getting the question on Romans 7. I'm sorry, not Romans Roman 7, 7 Matthew, Matthew 7. 7. Romans yeah. 7 is also a great chapter. Yes, it is. Yeah. And it's one we already did uh, a couple weeks ago. I think last yeah. week. can't remember. But Matthew 7, 
And the famous phrase of Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you, is a legitimate fear and anxiety among many, many Christians. So what we're going to do today on the podcast is try and walk you through what did Jesus want us to know and maybe how we misinterpreted that. So Justin, I'm going to start with you. I know that you wanted to kind of give us a little bit of a context with uh, uh, Matthew 5, and that'll help us in our explanation walking through the passage in Matthew 7 so that we can fully understand Jesus' intention, and we're not going to be biblicist or eisegete a text, which means to isolate a verse out of its context and Mm -hmm. make our own application separate from the original intention of the application. So it's all you, man. Word. Yeah, we want to try to faithfully understand this text in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, because that's where this occurs. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 contain the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, is perhaps the uh, most famous sermon in the history of the world. And what we would understand is contained in those chapters is a summary of all the things that Jesus would have taught on that occasion. And so we want to be faithful to that context in in an immediate way, but then we also want to be faithful to the context of the New Testament, the New Covenant, the context of the entire Scripture. And so, yeah, we we hope that that's what occurs today, and we hope this is encouraging for people. So the Sermon on the Mount wholesale, there are a number of things that could be said about it, but it's very clear that perhaps the primary thing that Jesus is aiming to do in that sermon is to unpack and preach for the people God's law— and apply it rightly to the hearts of man. And he begins with the Beatitudes, which are relatively famous. And I think those we could talk about for just a second. Where he begins by saying, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, et cetera. It's very clear that what Christ is saying in that context is, you're blessed if these things characterize you. And to be these things very clearly means that you understand that you are weak, that you are needy, that you do not have what it takes and that you would be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but understanding, I'm going to go and say in the context of the whole scripture, understanding that that righteousness must be given to you. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you can achieve and earn. It's very clear in the way that he lays out some of those beatitudes there. But then he goes on in Matthew chapter five to say things like, I didn't come to abolish the law. Mm-hmm. I came to fulfill the law. You know, Not any small part of the law is going to pass away. And then he says to the people that righteousness is required of you, and in particular, a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, which in that context would have been a mind-blowing thing to say, because the scribes and Pharisees were famous for their conformity to the law. I mean, they were so godly and pious, right, that they had even put a hedge around the law so that they didn't come close to breaking it. Right. And that would have been the perception, and that would have been held up in the minds of the people as the standard of righteousness and godliness. And Jesus says, even that is not enough. You need something that exceeds even that. And then he goes on to illustrate what the law of God requires in talking about anger, you know, and how he'll say, you, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. And you might paraphrase, you might think you're good if you hadn't killed somebody, but I'm telling you that if you're angry with your brother, you've broken the law. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. You might think you're doing well and that you've fulfilled the law if you're not sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse, but I'm telling you, if you've lusted after somebody, you've broken the law. And he goes on to talk in those ways. And then at the very end of chapter five, in verse 48, the conclusion there of that section is, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And anybody who has ears to hear, 
that is listening to Christ speak these kinds of words must draw the conclusion, I am done. <laughs> it's, it's hopeless for me because right. I cannot do what Christ is telling me I have to do. That's right. And so this is an exercise in law and gospel distinction in large part. If you don't have a law gospel distinction in view when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, God help you. Because right. Christ is saying things that will absolutely not only unsettle you, but crush you. Because it's very clear that what is required of us before the Lord, we could never pull it off. And it's with that in view, I mean, we're going to fast forward to chapter seven, John. Hey, before you do, just, I think it's it's helpful just to even read the beginning of verse six, because he is setting the tone of who he's talking to. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. So he is dealing with an issue of self-righteousness. I think this is so important. Yeah, self-righteousness in this kind of very external showy religion. I mean, even when he teaches us to pray, you know, in the the famous model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, what does he say right before it? Right. Don't heap up empty phrases in prayer like the Gentiles do, thinking that they'll be heard for their many words. Like, don't That's do right. that. That's what ungodly people do. Mm-hmm. You know, in reality, God already knows what you need before you ask him, so therefore pray this way. That's right. Anyway, yeah, completely. Yeah. I, so chapter he, seven. I, yeah, and— and in that context, when he says, don't lay up yourselves treasures on earth, sometimes we think of that about money. But in context, again, I, I, I do think he's thinking of your your works here. You think you're somehow gaining value. And he's like, no, this is not where your value is, is found. So it's so helpful if you're going to make applications and understand what is Jesus' intentions of us understanding what he's saying you have to pay close attention to his audience and his words and what he's saying. So this is why we want to kind of start back in verse five, get the whole sermon in mind. What's he going after? There's a law gospel distinction definitely going on. He's giving them law so that they'll take the gospel. They don't want the gospel. So he ups the law higher and higher and higher. Mm-hmm. It's important to remember that Jesus almost exclusively interacts with Jewish people with other Jewish mm-hmm. people. He is not speaking to Gentiles. He's not speaking to pagans, right? He's talking no. to people who would have had the Torah, the law of God, who would have at least to some extent known it, and who would have been under this very Pharisaical kind of religion where they were taught that do these things and you will be righteous. Do these things. Now, you know, even the Pharisees would acknowledge that God needs to be gracious in this and that God is the one who kind of makes us this way. You know, a la Luke 18, you know, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. But it still is this notion of we need to be righteous and we need to do what's required. Right. And so he's talking to people, to use the language of the Gospels that we see repeated over and over again, he's talking to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, right? And he's talking to people that trust that they can somehow achieve righteousness. Mm-hmm. And we cannot ever forget that when we're reading the teachings of Christ. Yeah. No, that's super helpful. Okay, so now we're moving into chapter seven. And in chapter seven, I think the theme is being carried along. So Jesus' primary mission, he says, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. He says, the 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 healthy don't need a physician, but the sick. So he's always telling them, I am here for those, just like we said a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Luke chapter 14, and he's talking about, those who can hear, let them hear. And who is it that walked toward Jesus? It was sinners and tax collectors. So he is, 
he is trying to convert every self-righteous Jew into a sinner because once they're a sinner, they'll want Jesus as a savior. But until they see Jesus as savior, then they're never going to see him as only but what he is, a Jewish teacher. That's all they're going to see him. No, as. you're exactly right. It's it's a, he's talking to people and he's saying effectively, you think you're healthy, but I'm telling mm-hmm. you, you're sick. That's you right. think you're righteous, but I'm telling you, you're a sinner. That's right. Totally. So then you look at, you look at uh, verse chapter seven. If you think, if you pay attention from chapter five going forward, it seems like Jesus just keeps upping the wall mm-hmm. so high that eventually he's, he, you know, no one will think they can climb over into acceptable righteousness in the presence of God, but they don't. So Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged for the, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged with the, with the measure that you use with your own measure. So because what is it, what are this be people doing? Oh, I, I'm a righteous person Who? and they're not. And Jesus is like, don't do that. Like, no, well, you, you're not, you're not understanding. It's straight up Romans too. Right. right. When you do that, what you're effectively doing is this. You are judging other people because they have not met the standard that you are holding out for them to meet. Mm-hmm. And then effectively, he is saying, you also have not met your own standard. So when right. you judge other people and condemn them for not meeting the standard and not passing the test, you condemn yourself because mm-hmm. you haven't done those things either. And then the point of Paul in Romans 2 that I think agrees with the words of Jesus is, if you haven't met your own standard, how much less so have you met God's That's standard? That's right. That's right. So uh, we're just for the sake of time, we're going to go through here. Um, he, talk, he even calls them hypocrites at one point. You hypocrite for this. Uh, first, take out the log that is in your own eye, your own sin, your own yeah. self-righteousness. You need to remove that before you can ever be considered to think about trying to help someone else. Um, and so he, he starts kind of moving on. And then there's the shift where he's trying to help them understand that um, he is drawing them to Christ. He's, I'm sorry, he's drawing them to himself. And he, mm-hmm. and he says something in verse 7, ask whatever, uh, and, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find it. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. He's He's bouncing back and forth between the concept of those who try and earn self-righteousness, mm-hmm. this is what happens to them. But those right. who receive self-righteousness, it's theirs. Like if yeah. you want self-righteousness, I'm sorry, if you want my righteousness, just ask for it. It's yours. And, and, and then he promises this because what you have to understand is that pe- these people have so much law in their mind. They must earn it. And Jesus says, oh, no. The Father who is good and will give good gifts, he will give it to you. Ask Amen. for it, and it's yours. Yeah, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, <laughs> right? And it's like, ask, and it will be given. You know, and Jesus is reiterating that God is a good and faithful Father who always gives good gifts to his kids. I mean, so you can trust that God will be good and that he will respond kindly to such a request. And what Jesus is doing there, John, I mean, you've somewhat said this already, it's an invitation. I mean, this is effectively Christ saying, come to me, you know, come to me and come to my father in humility and meekness and poorness of spirit, if that's even a way to phrase it, you know, and and poverty, the poverty of your, your own spiritual condition and ask, and it will be given. It's Luke 18 again. It's have mercy on me, a sinner. 
you know. Yeah. And and then I'm just mindful, John, of Jesus saying in John chapter six, I mean, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Mm-hmm. You know, so this invitation, ask and you'll receive, it all hangs together quite beautifully. Yes, it does. Now, Justin, now we're getting to a place where things are going to get a little complicated. And this is where these verses are often used to beat, I think, Christians down, to scare them, um, you know, from some of the camps that I grew up in, which was, you know, fundamentalism and even the Lordship Salvation Camp. These are used as a way to say, hey, for those who are going to be a real Christian, a true Christian, those who are going to take serious Jesus, you, we're just going to quote Jesus. And Jesus literally says that it's it's hard to be a Christian. It's, it's hard to find your way in. So, uh, you start think you start reading verses like Romans seven thirteen. Enter by the Matthew narrow 7. gate. Sorry, hey, I know. I'll get it's it okay, there. Man. If You're I right. say Romans, you know I mean Matthew. At least today, if John says Romans, he means Matthew. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's bad because I may actually end up saying Romans. So yeah, Matthew seven. Uh, praise God that one day we'll be perfect and not make these mistakes. Anyways, mm. uh, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So right there, Jesus is saying that if you're going to come unto him, it's going to be hard. And there's not going to be very many that find it. And Justin, what is Jesus communicating? Have we misunderstood him? Are we understanding him rightly? What what is he saying here? What I don't think he's saying is the kind of stuff that would be presented, like you alluded to, John, in the lordship camp. The kind of uh, hard to believe, you know, that you right. need to be uh, like Christianity's hard. Like you need to be dedicated enough. You need to persevere. You need to grit your teeth and white knuckle this thing, and you know, stay the course. And it's going to be hard. And only you know, if it was easy, everybody would do it. And only the strong survive. You know, I mean, like that's the message that we often hear. And I don't think that's at all what Christ is saying, in part because that would fly in the face of the context of the Sermon on the Mount. That's right. And it is contradictory to the gospel. That's right. Bottom line. And so we then ask ourselves, in light of the context of the Sermon on the Mount, where it falls in redemptive history, in light of a law gospel distinction and the like, and also a theology of the cross. I'm just throwing a bunch of terms at people that we've used before. And if you don't know what these are, you can listen to some other episodes or look them up. What I we'll think Christ up, we'll, is saying, we'll put them in the notes. You can yeah, go we'll find those episodes. Yeah. What I think Christ is saying, John, is that very few people will be Christians uh, because it is hard to enter because very few people are going to renounce their own virtue and mm-hmm. renounce like what they're doing and trust in Christ alone. That's like right. that is not something that is intuitive or natural for fallen man. We always want to trust in ourselves in some way. That's and right. so it's hard actually. And, and and frankly, to use the words of Christ elsewhere, it's impossible for man to enter into this because we always want to look to ourselves. And it is only by a miracle of God that we would ever look away from ourselves completely and trust Christ. And so, yeah, the the way is, the gate is narrow and the way is hard in that, like Christ says in other places, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if we follow Jesus, you know, we will live a cruciform life in that we follow a crucified, suffering Messiah. And so our lives will also be characterized by weakness, and we will encounter harm and hatred for his name. It will that's not right. be an easy way to live, right? I think that's what he's trying to illustrate 
there. Right. And yeah, this is not disconnected from the context of being perfect. I mean, this no. is the outflow of it. Correct. As a matter of fact, he gives he gives something above it. So, you know, however you wish to be treated, treat other people that way, for this is the law and the prophets. And then he says, oh, and by the way, entering into the gate is hard. It's narrow. There are few that find it. Why? Totally. <laughs> because it requires you to abandon yourself in any self-worth, any self-righteousness is who he is talking to. Totally. And then he says to them, uh, if, if we just keep going, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And so, again, this is where we get into fruit checking. What I think is interesting in the context, Jesus is saying you're looking for the fruits of the false teachers, and you're trying to use that to be aware of it. And, Correct. And, Justin, some would say, well, what is Jesus pointing out about what are they teaching that is false? I have to say, Jesus, I think, has made it very clear that the false teaching is you are saved by the law. Right. Well, I mean, I think the false teaching in particular that he's pointing out in his immediate context is the false teaching of the Pharisees. That's right. Who have told people that, like you just said, do these things well enough, maybe by God's grace, right? But do, Mm -hmm. do these things well enough and you will be righteous. That's right. Which, again, we like to put things on the text, and this is... It's sad when this happens, when you have preachers or um, teachers who will make this context about lazy Christians or sinful Christians or people in general, and now they're trying to say, no, Jesus is trying to straighten these people up, and he's pointing out saying, you can live, you can say you follow Jesus and live however you want, and that's what Jesus is pointing out. It's like, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be hard, and you need to be, you need to be aware of these people because they're going to have bad fruit. Jesus is not talking about people who are claiming to follow him. He's talking to people who won't follow him. That's the problem. They won't follow him because they don't see a need for him because they have their own righteousness. Well, and so don't put your context on what Jesus is saying. Listen to what Jesus is saying in his own context. Really at the heart of what Jesus is trying to expose in the entire sermon, but in this context too, immediately in chapter 7, is this thing that we talk about all the time, where is your trust and confidence? Right. Are you trusting in yourself and what you're doing, or are you trusting in Christ? And That's right. it's very clear that what Christ is aiming to do is destroy any possibility of us trusting in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And he is inviting us to trust in him. Right. That's right. And so now we come to verses 21 to 23. Of well, Matthew real quick, chapter seven. before right, we do, because yeah. it's, fa- it's the famous verses that are used, and I, and I do think they are connected. It says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So again, he's what, talking about teachers, though, in that, that context. He is. Right. And let's say you can make the argument False that, prophets, et cetera. Because he does say um, every healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. So Let's say for the sake of argument, he's talking about good fruit and bad fruit, just for the sake of argument, right? He does, sorry, man, I keep hitting my microphone here. He does mention um, good fruit. Justin, what fruit is he talking about here? We just have to ask you, we, we put into the text what we think Jesus is saying, but can we look at Matthew 5 through 7 and determine what Jesus means by this context of fruit? 
If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith versus Faithfulness, a Primer on Rest. And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org primer. Whenever the illustration of a tree and its fruit is used, I want to say a few things. I mean, first of all, if we're talking about fruit that has any kind of value, we're talking about the fruit of God's Spirit, full stop. And it's very clear that only the Holy Spirit of God can produce said fruit. Yes. And it's important that when we talk about a tree and fruit, that we understand the relationship of the tree to the fruit. And many people before me have said this, but it just bears repeating uh, right now, that the tree being alive is what causes it to produce fruit. The fact that there is fruit on the tree does not make the tree alive. Like you That's can't right. invert the relationship, right? And so life produces fruit. Fruit does not produce life. And so right. when we are talking about fruit biblically, we are always in the realm of evidence and demonstration of life that has been given by God to somebody. And that, this is why willpower religion will never square with the gospel of Christ. That's right. Because you cannot reverse engineer this and you cannot white knuckle this thing and produce the kind of fruit that Christ is talking about. You right. can't do it. Only right. God can. That's right. So in context, self-righteousness, obedience to the law and laws that aren't even Christ's law. These are, sure. these are man-made Jewish laws. And Jesus is saying, you will know them by their fruit. fruit. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to see it. You're going to see the self-righteousness and know sure. they're a false teacher because that is not what I am talking about. Yeah. The, the bad fruit is that the good fruit is what I was describing. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that is where we find ourselves now. Like you have to hear everything he has set up to this point. Otherwise what comes next won't make sense. Right. JP, let's do it. All right. Verses 21 to 23 of Matthew seven. I'm just going to read them just so that they're in the minds and the ears of our listeners, and then we'll talk yeah. about it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. All right, let's just kind of walk through this, John, yeah, and, go ahead. and just riff a little bit. All right, so verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, immediately when I hear those words of doing the will of my Father in heaven, my mind goes to John chapter six, where Jesus is very clear about what it is to do the works of God. And effectively, he says, I'm just gonna turn there so that I can cite chapter and verse for the listener. He says in John chapter six and verse, let's see, 29, John six twenty nine. this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so I don't think we can forget that. Um, you may call Jesus Lord and you may call upon him, but have you trusted in him whom the father has sent? That's and if right. you are doing that, I mean, in one sense, you are doing the works of God, but that's just that's one right. observation on verse 21. There's yeah. 
you want to say anything about that verse, John? Or no, you no, go keep going. I'll, I'll let you finish up and then I'll, I'll All right. comment. So then notice in verse 22, there will be many who say to Jesus at the end of history, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? Did we not do all of these works in your name? And Christ's response to them is, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. I think it has to be observed in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. You have people you know, who are calling upon Christ and who are saying to him, Jesus, we're legitimate. Look at all we did in your name. We did it in your name and look at all this stuff we did. And he says, depart from me. It's very clear that they are trusting in something else besides him alone. They are not looking to him. They are in some measure looking to the works they have done in his name. Mm-hmm. And Christ says to those people, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, I want to also observe from verse 23 that we can't forget something like John chapter 10, where Jesus is very clear that he knows his own That's and his right. own know him. They hear his voice and they follow after him. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish, right? Nobody can pluck them from my hand. That stands too. And mm-hmm. so this situation is very clear, John, in the context of everything that we've been saying. The people that are going to come to Christ and call upon him and Jesus is going to look at them and say, depart from me, are people who are still trusting in their own righteousness. They're looking to works that they have performed in Christ's name, right? And Jesus is going to tell them, your confidence and your trust is misplaced. You, in fact, are not my sheep because my sheep know me and follow me and trust in me, not in anything else. That's right. So he begins, he gives some parables to explain to them, if you reject what I'm saying, you're a fool. So he says to them, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock and the rain falls and the floods came and the winds blew. Anyways, we all have all heard the story. And then at the very end, Matthew writes of verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He came in and basically said, thus saith the Lord. And if you don't believe this, you're damned. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, I was brief, just theological comment here. I mean, it is so similar to when the law was given the first time through Moses at Sinai. That's right. You know, the law then is given through a mediator on a mountain, right, written on tablets of stone. But then Jesus now shows up as the new and greater Moses on a mountainside is going and is going to really give people the law. And that's right. People are shocked and astonished at what he says. Because it's like you said, it's thus saith the Lord. This has come directly from God himself. And we, for the first time, are hearing rightly what God requires of us. And this is astonishing. Yeah. That's right. So the the tender, poor person who legitimately worries, is God going to look at me and say, he never knew me? They, there are people who listen to this podcast, and I know you struggle with that. Like you're afraid that when you get to heaven that, you're, that you weren't genuine, you truly didn't believe, you truly didn't repent enough, you didn't do good enough works. It almost sounds like Roman Catholicism, and it's pietism. It's this constant introspection of, am I doing enough to basically prove to God, let me in. Don't leave me out in the cold, please, Father. I I, I want to make sure this is the, a done deal. This is not who Jesus is talking to. As a matter of fact, to that dear precious person who is beat down by the law, you know what he says to you? Just come to me and I'm going to give you rest. Come to me. So yeah. the, these harsh words, you know who they're for? 
They're for the person who has the confidence in themselves saying, well, I've done all the right things. I've said all the right things. I am good. Therefore, God should accept me. And Jesus says, Mm -hmm. I don't know you. Exactly. I I don't save people like you because you don't need to be saved. Well, I save people who crumble under their sin and say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Not to quote Paul in Romans. Yeah, seven legitimately. <laughs> Romans seven legitimately. No, yeah. So God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Right. That's right. That's, that's in Scripture. Now, He is opposed to every proud person. He is opposed to people who are trusting in themselves. Right. That they are righteous. Yeah. But to those who have been humbled and crushed by the law, what does Christ say? Like you already said it. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Yeah. Come. Take my yoke. And again, the yoke was an image used of the law, right? Mm -hmm. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's that's the invitation of Christ to all those who are poor in spirit, to all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to all those who are meek, who have been crushed by God's holy requirements and know they don't meet the test. He says, come to me and find rest and righteousness and peace and absolution and forgiveness. That's right. And yeah, man, it it's, you know, John 640, we've already talked about this or 637, excuse me, where Jesus says, you know, all the father gives to me will come to me and all who mm-hmm. come to me, I will never cast out. That's Christ right. never turns people away who come to him in faith yep. and who come to him knowing that they can't achieve righteousness and need him to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's only those who are proud and self-righteous who are trusting in some measure in themselves that Christ would be opposed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone, someone may ask, well, how do I know if I've heard the voice of Jesus? When he says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and I know them. And I will tell you this, if you can look at yourself and say, there's no way, there's no way that I measure up to what God requires. Be yeah. perfect as I am perfect. I can't do that. I've never right. been able to do it a moment. I've never loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I've definitely not loved my neighbor. So if you feel that, This is what Jesus' voice sounds like. If you do not want to be condemned and held accountable for this violation against the Father, then you come to me and I'll receive that punishment. And in turn, I'm going to give you my obedience. I'm going to give you my righteous garments that you are going to wear. And the Father is going to look at you and say, my child, my child. That's what Jesus' voice sounds like, and that's where rest is found. So if you are hearing the gospel message of you want to be set free from your guilt, you want all the required righteousness that God requires of you to be in his presence, then come to Jesus. It is that simple. By faith, trust in God's imputation of his righteousness Mm -hmm. and his, his, his replacement of you on the cross. It really is that simple, and that Jesus keeps saying that over and over and over. It is that simple, but you must first see yourself as sick and sinful, a wretch. This is why it says that Jesus spent time with sinners because that's who he came to save. Why would he go spend time with the righteous? They don't want him. He's going to go spend time with the sinners because those people are going to want him. Yeah, and sinners gravitated toward him in his earthly ministry, and sinners still do the same. I mean, I'm listening to you talk and I'm just like, Paul, I mean, also in Romans 7, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. I mean, Mm. 
what a what a tender, gentle, kind, loving Savior we have. That's right. And yeah, and He bids us come to Him. That's right. For for all of the things that we've been talking about. And well, I, our go ahead. The most harsh you've ever seen Jesus when His temper is appropriately brought to a high level, the words to come out of his mouth like viper, things like that. He is not talking to those who have morally and socially destroyed their lives. He's talking to those who are presenting themselves as acceptable in his presence. He's saying, I'm God, I'm God. And you're going to come approach me as an equal. How dare you? How dare you? Right or you know, like you said, viper hypocrite. He he tells the Pharisees that they're like whitewashed tombs. Like you have it all together on the outside, and inside you're dying. You know, right. or even when he pronounces woe upon mm. not only the scribes and Pharisees, but also upon certain cities and stuff. And he'll say right. that if the works that had been done in you had been done in Nineveh, Nineveh would have repented. Or you know, it will be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you. You know, because you. Again, I mean, the the posture is we don't need Jesus. We don't want Jesus. We're fine as we are. You know, we've got this thing figured out and we're doing just fine at pleasing the Lord. And Christ's word to that is woe to you, mm-hmm. judgment, you know, condemnation, wrath. I'm opposed to people like that. That's you right. Know, but for those who are sinners, and like we said it already, weak and meek and all those kinds of things who come to him knowing they're sick, knowing their need. He is gentle and lowly and gracious and tender. And like I said a minute ago, I, it, I, th- I just want to say it again. It is no shock that the sinners and tax collectors are the ones who gathered around Christ at various points in his ministry. When the Pharisees were like, nah, man, we don't want anything to do with you. It was those who knew they were a wreck who were drawn to him. And that right. still is true in the church. It's That's true right. for all of us who know that we are a mess and that we, we're looking inside and we find no place to stand and we know that we rightly should bear the wrath and condemnation of God and that we could never, even after trusting in Jesus, we could never do enough mm-hmm. to have earned God's favor and or to have turned ourselves into the kind of person that God would have been happy to save. Mm-hmm. And so we're always looking to Jesus. Yeah. And God you know, gives grace. You know, it's interesting for those who hear the voice of Jesus. They say, oh, it is good to be in the house of the Lord because we will be reminded once again that we were brought here on the grace of our Father. He brought us here. But to the self-righteous, they will say, oh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord because it is here I have earned my righteousness. It is here that I will prove this week I have been faithful. All right, right, uh, piggybacking on that. Yeah, it's good to be in the house of the Lord one person says, yeah, it's good to be in the house of the Lord because this is where I come and bring an offering to God that pleases him. That's right. <laughs> this is where I come to do something and give something to God that he desires. That's right. The other person says, it is good to be in the house of the Lord because I come in absolute desperate need. And I know my faithful father is going to meet me here and he's going to give me what I need. And he's going to give me his son, you know, in the word and in the sacrament. And I come empty and needy that I might be filled and nourished and sustained. You know, one is a posture I think that is commensurate with what Christ is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. And another one, though well-intentioned, I think is misguided. God is honored very much when we know that we are in need, that we know when we know we're sick and that we're not righteous 
and we need him, you know, mm-hmm. to give us what we could never do and accomplish on our own. Yeah. Um, just kind of one yeah. parting shot before I, I go and Justin, you may have one before we move over to the members podcast, but for that sensitive conscience out there that really truly is feeling this fear, first of all, you know, safe in Christ, the primer on assurance, we'd recommend that. We'd also recommend our episode that we did. You can go back and find that in the podcast feed that we did on assurance. But if you are afraid that God's going to abandon you on the day of judgment, he will abandon you absolutely. And it's not abandonment. He's just going to reject you. If you are showing up holding your own self-righteousness as a means by which God should accept you, you should be terrified. Absolutely. But if you're standing there utterly disgusted with yourself saying, there is nothing good in me that God would ever accept. And if I don't have Jesus, I'm doomed. He will not turn you away. He will never turn you away. Yeah, if you come, like you said, John, saying, I got nothing. I, I've got right. only what Christ has given me. There is no reason to fear. And right. you will never be lost and you will never be turned away. Not because nope. you're strong, but because Christ is strong. You will never be lost and you will never be turned away. Not because you won't fail, but because Christ will never fail you. That's right. And and we look to Jesus always. And I'll talk about this more in the members area maybe, but that kind of wrestling, even over Matthew 7 in particular, is not lost on me because this verse or these verses would come up in my mind and heart for years and years and years and would just rob me of any peace because I was convinced that I was going to be one of those people mm-hmm. that I will have spent my life sincerely meaning to trust and follow Christ. And at the end of it all, it will have been for nothing because he's going to look at me and he's going to see right through me. He's going to see that I'm a sinner and that I just am not worthy. And, and he's going to say, depart from me. And my, my word to that weary saint is, you most certainly are not worthy, but this mm-hmm. has never been about your worthiness. This has always been about Christ's worthiness and Christ's work for you. And God loves and delights to save all of those who trust in his son. That's right. That's yeah. good. Amen. Well, for those of you that are new, we have another podcast that we do where uh, it's kind of the unfiltered version. We're going to go deeper and, and, and farther into this conversation. And it's for those who kind of want to take this conversation to the next level where they really want to dive into a reformed biblical understanding, uh, understand how it is that we can help others find rest in Christ. So you can find out more about that by going to our website, theocast.org. And there's all kinds of new stuff coming. There's a new membership coming. Stay tuned for that. It's so hard not to talk about it, but it's going to be amazing. I can't even tell you. And uh, it's a lot of work. So we're also going to need your prayer and support on that. So new website, new membership, all kinds of stuff coming. And new book. Can we tell them what the new book is? Should we even announce that? That we're working on? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. So we're working on another primer on Reformed Theology. Yeah. What is Reformed Theology? So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening. Hey, let, let us know if you have any questions or any comments, or if this was helpful, leave us a review, leave us a comment. Uh, it's always encouraging to see how God is uh, advancing the gospel, encouraging those to rest in Christ. We'll see you next week.